Hi, I'm John McElroy, and welcome to Out of Line This Week. My special guest for today's program is Bob Lutz, one of the most unique individuals ever to come through the automotive industry. And that's because he worked at so many different car companies, starting his career at General Motors, moving to BMW, then Ford, then Chrysler, where he became president, and ultimately returning to General Motors, where he was the vice chairman. With that kind of background, he picked up a lot of knowledge about this business and has written several books, the most recent of which is titled Icons and Idiots. I can't wait to hear what he has to say about the industry. And joining me for today's show are Peter DeLorenzo, a.k.a. The Auto Extremist, and Chubachetta, the former editor of Car and Driver magazine. We'll be getting into all that right after this. Underwriting for Auto Line this week is provided by... In this epic battle of fuel efficiency and endurance, we're here to see which hybrid has the best MPG. That's the essence of a hybrid soul. But is there more to it? The Hybrid Game MPG Challenge. And now, here is your host, John McElroy. And of course, the real reason we're so excited tonight is we got Bob Lutzen here with us. Bob, great having you here. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you. So, we'll be talking about a whole bunch of things uh, tonight, but uh, I'm just curious. I mean, you've been at Ford, BMW, Chrysler, General Motors. You've seen twice. You've you've seen so much of where this industry has gone and where it's going. And that's what I want to ask. What's your outlook for the industry right now? Uh, I think for the next fifteen or twenty years, it's going to be good. We'll probably you know have another recession or so. But fundamentally, as I look at the next two or three years, I see onward and upward. And uh, especially for the U.S. producers, frankly, uh, I think after 20 years of maybe 30 years of trying to get by on mediocrity, I think all three American companies have discovered that only excellence, only product excellence, is that's the only formula that'll work in today's marketplace. And I, I really believe that uh, all three U.S. companies are now producing products that are so good um, that they'll regain market share in the, and they represent a, a fantastic value compared to imports. And, uh, and then, of course, the American brand, especially General Motors, is doing exceptionally well in China. And, and people tend, we tend to be U.S.-centric. You know, we tend to think, uh, how are, how are, how's everybody doing in the U.S.? That still matters a lot, but it's no longer what matters most. What matters most now is how are you doing in China? Um, and on that score, the American producers are doing, by and large, better than the Japanese. So um, I, I just see continued growth as a genuine comeback for the Detroit automakers, but growth for everybody. I noticed in China, uh, BMW was just denied some sort of a agreement from the government or permit to do something there. Do you think that's going to be... 
um, more of a problem as we go forward in China? I, well, it, it's a problem anywhere where you have a central government that essentially regulates the industry. And um, you can really only do business with a Chinese partner. Um, if you want to be a component supplier, you're allowed to put in a plant and own it 100%. But if you're an OEM, you need a Chinese partner. I'm not, I'm not familiar with this, this BMW issue, but yeah. um, I, I think we're all familiar enough with government bureaucracies and government regulation that we know that that can be a big problem. And in a country like China, where the government is all powerful, it can obviously be an even bigger problem. You know, there's no question the product coming out of the big three is really good. But I hear things every now and then that disturb me. I mean, I still see a lot of cheap leases and incentives. And, you know, they're possible today because interest rates are pretty low. But it does seem that the industry has kind of fallen back a little bit to buying sales. But, but wait a minute, Chama. Uh Incentives are now lower than at the same time last year. All three of the domestics, I mean, Chrysler the most because they were, uh, they were so heavy into daily rental that they... <laughs> daily rental and cheap fleet that they had almost no retail. But um, part of the hidden success, new, hidden renewed success of Chrysler is that they've been able to dial back a lot on daily rental, as has General Motors. I'm not quite sure where Ford is, but I imagine it's the same thing. And the real story is that uh, the U.S. industry is now relying much, much less on what poor business that used to drive numbers, but... Um, destroyed residuals, uh, didn't retain owners, et cetera, and was uh, was purely a price-based business. Uh, you look at Ford, Ford and GM now, or Jeep, I mean, uh, the average transaction prices are probably even inflation-adjusted. Uh, inflation-adjusted um, at least 10% over where they were prior to 08. And... Um, uh, I know GM is watching leases very carefully, um, and you look at the July results, uh, the, the real story is, yeah, the overall sales gain for GM was like 12%, but retails were up like 30 So, uh, which means that, I'm not sure of that number, I, I may remember. I was going to bring all these sheets with me tonight, and I forgot <laughs> them. But uh, the, the, it's all three domestic companies are expanding their retail base and relying less on poor business and incentives are down. And remember back in the old days when people used, old days about 10 years ago, when people said, you know Japanese cars are better because look at Detroit, they have to offer incentives and the Japanese don't. Well, almost the incentive king now is the Toyota Camry as they're desperately trying to hang on to the number one spot and we all... Remember when the Ford Taurus tried to do that? I mean, trying to hang on to the number one spot by by heavy discounting gets you absolutely nothing except poor residuals. Well, well are you disturbed by, I mean, it, 
an announcement like GM saying they're going to keep the cruise in production for an extra year because it seems to be selling well. And on one hand, you look at that and it makes sense. On the other hand, if you want to be the best in that class, the earlier you introduce the next model that's even yeah, better, I, you cement your I reputation. I know the of that, Chuba. Okay. I, 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 and the um, cruise, and I say that admiring the cruise and thinking no, it's no, a pretty good car know, right they, now. They can change the grill and do a new grill like, like the revision on the... Um, I'm not sure they're going to do that, but if they had to, they could do a new front end, the, the, like the new Impala front end, and like the Malibu being freshened with that same front end, which is the new Chevy identity. That personally, if I were there, that's what I'd do because you can you can easily get another two years out of that car. Uh, I think the story of the cruise was the um, the replacement, which I had seen um, at some uh, was causing some people some worry. And um, it, it rather than go with a program that you really are not sure of, it's just better to stop. The current one's fine. We can easily sell that one for another couple of years. And let's do a melt and repour on the new one. Hmm. One of the okay. things why uh, the domestics are doing a whole lot better is, I mean, you had enormous influence at GM uh, before the big collapse, before the bankruptcies yeah. and all that. Everybody was just trying to cheapen, cheapen, cheapen the yeah. product. And one of the things that you've been preaching is, no, spend a little yeah. bit more money, make the car better. Yeah, and, you know, that was the whole thesis of my, of my book, Car Guys versus Bean Counters, in this um, try to shave cost to get the numerical margins up on paper on a future product program is self-defeating and it's a race for race toward the bottom and the, the, the transaction prices that you write down when you're doing the plan for that car, if you cheapen it enough, you're never going to get those transaction prices in the real world. And it, it took the finance guys forever to figure out that all of these programs look great on paper and then when the car was on the market a few years, uh, it was a financial disaster and they could never connect the dots. But uh, I, you know, one of the things, and um, I, I sort of have to correct an, an, an old view of mine. I always thought it would be a disaster if uh, CEOs came into this industry with no automotive background. I'm revising my opinion on that because what we had was a sort of a, um, a standardized, all three companies, a standardized Harvard MBA executive uh, who then spent 30 years in the business <clears throat> learning exactly how you manage product programs, and it's all totally financially driven. It's squash the investment down, squash the piece cost down, um, <clears throat> make the base model with, the, with tires so skinny that nobody will buy it, and then option up to the, to the, to the right tire size, you know. And all of that, that sort of assuming that the customer is not very smart but we've, we, we owe it to the shareholders to make this program look good on paper. Um, I think if, in all three companies, if the successors had been 30-year veterans of the automobile industry, there would have been a very strong tendency to slip back into the bad old ways of doing business. What you've got now is three CEOs who have no prior experience in the automobile business, and they came to it um, with a fresh set of eyes, and, and, and the, I, I know in, in Dan Ackerson's case, he looked at it and he said, well, 
bad cars didn't do well. Great cars seem to do well. Ergo, let's keep doing great cars with high value. And you know, I was, the Impala was kind of on its way when I left. The design was finished. We, uh, the architecture was finished, but the execution of the car had just begun. And I, needless to say, had some worries because I, I thought with, with my pressure for excellence in NVH, brakes, interior materials, and everything, I was, af I was afraid that the old bean counterism would make a comeback, the empire strikes back, you know, and, and the, the car would uh, become a, a sort of an average American large car again. Didn't happen. Uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine that that car could have turned out any better than it did. So I think in all three companies, the ethic, and, and then look at the look at the Grand Cherokee. I mean, I, I really, in that category of sport utility, that thing is just fantastic. Uh, whether it's engine, transmission, driveline, off-road capability, and interior. Um, so I think, the, um, and I, I, got, I got a chance to say this on, I think, Power lunch on CNBC the other day. They said, "What's happening? Uh, what's all this happening with the American automobile industry?" And I said, "The American automobile industry is on a genuine roll, and uh, I think people who are not considering American cars for their next purchase are depriving themselves of a great deal of value." You got to be thrilled then. Uh, Consumer Reports picked the Impala as their best pick, right? Yeah. I mean. They said the best of all, and it's got to be, uh, they say 30 years since Consumer Reports picked an American yeah, car. In my lifetime, I, I don't remember it. it. I, I, don't, I don't remember, or right. I can't imagine what that, what that one was 30 yeah, me years either. ago. Could you? It was ancient. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, well, that, that obviously was uh, a validation, and um, as I look at the sales figures, the Impala is moving out really well, and again, at transaction prices, thousands of dollars over the old Impala, thousands of dollars. Now, let's assume that compared to the old Impala, there is, and this, this was sort of the recipe that I was constantly dangling in front of the finance people. I said, let me put 500 more into the car and we'll recover at least 2,000 more on average transaction prices. That has worked out even better. I mean, transaction, and, and in some cases, it's less than $500. In other cases, it's way more than $500. But the way the transaction prices have moved, because people are willing to pay for, for excellence. It's that simple. If, uh, if people fall in love with it, look at the, the Ford Fusion, you know, a genuinely nice car. I yeah. think one of the uh, best design jobs ever in the midsize sedan segment. And I haven't driven it, but I understand it's... No, it's a good car. Drives as good as it looks. Yeah. yeah, it's a very competent car. I'm sure it goes down the road very well. It's, it's going to be reliable, good fuel economy. And um, nobody ever thought that an American brand could challenge the Japanese in the midsize segment. But now the Fusion is constrained only by capacity. Only by capacity. Well, when you look at incentives, and you know, you're pointing out how the Japanese imports are running a lot of incentives, at least some of them are, 
I'm amazed at what's happening at the top of the segment where you've got your former company, BMW, sort of in a death struggle for Mercedes for number one in the luxury area. Yeah. And these guys are supposed to be exclusive brands. Well, that's, that's what I always and, say. And they're going nuts. Well, this is like um, what happened 30 years ago between Cadillac and Lincoln. Uh, to try to be the number one luxury brand, and they were doing all... I, I still remember ads in the Detroit Free Press. Now, at Hertz, rent a Lincoln town car for as little as nineteen ninety-five a day, you know. And I, I showed it to Don Peterson. I said, Don, we're trying to build Lincoln as a prestige brand. How is this compatible with what we're trying to do? Um, don't worry about it, Bob. We've, you know, we've got plants to fill, and, and we have... A, to me, trying to be world's most popular prestige brand is a lot like trying to be world's tallest midget. Yeah, it yeah, just, yeah. just doesn't work. Yeah. Or it's a title that's meaningless. And I, I think both with uh, a lot of the heavily discounted leases that both BMW and Mercedes are using, um, at some point when the cars become ubiquitous, the prestige value fades. Well, and it may start happening that the cars become very common, and uh, at some point, interest rates are going to pick up from where they are today. I mean, these are historic low levels. When interest rates pick up, lease rates are going to pick up. I mean, right now, the lease rates are low, both because they're subventing them a little yeah. bit, but also because the cost of money is pretty low, and uh, one That's of those true. things is going to go away at some point. But, um, and one of the... I mean, BMW has been exceptionally good at maintaining residuals despite the heavy leasing. And that's because they've done an exceptionally good job at remarketing the off-lease cars. They've, they've done that better than anybody else. I have two CPO BMWs in my garage. I mean, I'm, 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 I've been sold on it. You know, uh, it's, it's a good way to get into that brand and get cars that are in very good shape for a considerable discount. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I just, I told myself I'd never buy another new car. I'd buy everything two-year off-lease with 24,000 miles. And I've, I finally broke down. I drove by the suburban Chevrolet's lot and saw a Camaro convertible in metallic orange with white stripes. And I just, just there's something about it that <laughs> drew me over to it. And it was exactly, you know, exactly the spec I wanted. So that was first new car I've bought in a long time. But other than that, um, I like I like two-year-old off-lease with, say, 24, 25,000 miles and manufacturer's powertrain warranty still in place. You can't well, go wrong. Well, and a lot of the CPO programs like BMWs, you know, they've got a four-year, 50,000-mile new car warranty. And with CPO, they add two years and 50,000 miles to it. Yeah. So, in fact, when I bought my 335, it was slightly less than two years old. So I had slightly longer in time warranty than a brand new car did. And I had, my car, I think, had 22,000 miles on yeah. it. So I had a 78,000-mile warranty as opposed to a 50,000-mile one. I mean, it's pretty hard to argue with that. Barely uh, broken in. Yeah. Modern cars at 24,000 miles are, like, brand new. Hey, you just mentioned uh, Don Peterson. You've, of course, come out with your book, Icons and Idiots, where you yeah. talk about all kinds of people that you either worked for or mentored you in your career. One of my favorite stories in the book, and it's a terrific book, by the way, Thank you. is you talked about the Fiesta Development Program in Europe, working with uh, Red Polling. Yeah. And the, the team came in and said, Red, we, we got to do this car, and it's going to cost a billion one. And he said, okay, you can have 400 million, go do it. 
and kept beating them down, beating them down. Well, that was, down. that was that was when in the part where I mean, red polling was uh, may he rest in peace, but was an extremely difficult guy to work for, and not always totally rational in his financially oriented decision making. I mean, he was he was often uh, the guy who would be penny wise and pound foolish, um, and um, but some of the lessons on toughness. Uh, which I, I had a tendency to believe the teams, you know, naively. I was only a marketing guy. If they came and said, this, we've, we've, we've looked at this program, it's going to be, uh, this was the second generation Fiesta. Uh, if they told me it was a, a billion, I, I would sort of say, well, are you sure? And they said, of course we're sure. We're presenting it. And I said, oh, okay. Well, in that case, you know. And what, what we did with the Fiesta at Polling's insistence, second gen, because we didn't make any money on the first gen, Polling said, look, on the, with the volume we've got, uh, and with if you figure the, the variable cost of the car plus the fixed cost, but part of the fixed cost allocation, of course, is depreciation and amortization, he said, we can't afford to spend more than $400 million on this program. And I said, okay, tough challenge. I mean, it'll be a lot of carryover and so forth. And the, the, the engineering guys, came, or the product guys, came in with 1.1 billion. And I said, no, that's, that's not going to work. You have to come back with 400. 400? That's not a new car. I said, well, you know, use your, use your creativity, but that's what it is. And darn it, in three weeks' time, they came back and said, one of our guys devised a way where we can package um, a, an interesting new linkage. We don't have to change the engine box or the front end structure of the car. And it's, I think it was seven or 10 million. And at that point, I said, you got it. And I went to Red and I said, Red, I overran the 400 because we're getting the new front suspension for, I don't know, seven or 10 or something. And he said, well, okay, but you see what happens when you're tough. Well, well given what you just said about making decisions with uh, red polling. And, you know, your book was interesting in the sense that you described your relationship with these guys and told a lot of anecdotes about your dealings. And many of those were non-flattering, but correct. you ended almost every chapter on a positive note. And the name of the book is Icons and Idiots. And I don't think you used the word idiot anywhere in the- No, I didn't. And uh, there, there's a reason for that. Um, is this mellowing icon, with icons old age? and Idiots was my working title. Which and, is a great title, by the way. Well, yeah. see, that's the point. And that's what the publisher said. I told the publisher, look, it's, it's only a working yeah. title. There you go. I mean, you're, you're, sounding, like buy a, it. you're, you're sounding like the publisher. Yeah. I, I was going <laughs> to call it Icons and Their Idiosyncrasies. And the publisher said, ah, forget that. Icons and Idiots <laughs> is great. Let's, let's leave it. And a lot of people have said to me, well, who's an icon and who's an idiot? And that's, that I, the, what I try to explain is that's not the breakdown. The breakdown is all of us, to some extent, are a careful, a careful blend of icon and idiot in that we all have our weak sides, our... Our, our weird habits, um, maybe some of us um, difficulties in, I mean, nobody really knows how good or bad they are at dealing with subordinates because your subordinates will never tell you that, That's right. that, that, that you're a bad boss. Um, so you don't know. And uh, I'm sure that like Phil Caldwell and Red Polling were, were blissfully unaware 
that they weren't that they weren't absolute stellar leaders. And um, so I think what I tried to do is show that some of these uh, much admired and highly successful personalities did have some traits that the public never saw, but that we saw internally, especially those who worked very closely with, with these people, to where you, you just sometimes uh, wondered, how did, how did these people become so successful? Hey, your book, though, I, what, what I wanted to bring up is, this book sounds more like Bob Lutz than any of the other books that you've written. I mean, I could hear your voice talking as I read the thing. Was was this more you doing it on your own than the prior one? No, I, I, I wrote all three of my books uniquely by myself. I, the, the, uh, the, one, the only one that had help was my first one, Guts, The Seven Laws of Chrysler and so forth, Seven Laws of Business that Made Chrysler the World's Heart. And there there was a chapter... Um, in the middle that sort of described the history of Chrysler from the time I got there until I left. And, you know, the Viper chapter was fine, but then there was sort of uh, a, a history chapter. And my then editor was a guy that I'm still in touch with by the name of Alan Farnham, who was a, a writer at, uh, at the time at Fortune. Alan said, look, I've liked all your chapters, and I've had to change very little, but this one really sucks. I mean, this one is, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and he says, it is so boring, it put me to sleep. I'll take a whack at it. So he wrote it, and it was funny as hell, and vibrant, and caught your attention. The trouble is it was totally factually inaccurate. <laughs> I hate when that happens. Yeah, and I said, Alan, look, yours is... Mine was accurate but dull. Yours is funny and hopelessly inaccurate, and I can't put my name to that. So, in desperation, I turned to my then speechwriter, um, Tim Yost, and said, Tim, I've got a big assignment for you. Take my version and Alan Farnham's version and try to make it as amusing as his and as factual as mine. So that, that whole chapter was kind of blended by Tim Yost. But then, of, of the three books, that is really the only chapter that I didn't write. And as I, I like to say, I write 110% of my books because my editor takes 10% out, as I do tend to run on at times. Or I'll repeat, I'll, I'll repeat stuff, you know. I've, I've, I, don't, I don't reread what I've written before. What sometimes happens is I'll say it again. The, use the same example again. Boy, what an interesting perspective that Bob Lutz brings to looking out over everything that's happened in this automotive industry. I truly hope that you did enjoy today's show because I know I certainly did. In any case, please join us again next week for AutoLine This Week. Underwriting for AutoLine This Week is provided by...
epic battle of fuel efficiency and endurance. We're here to see which hybrid has the best MPG. That's the essence of a hybrid soul. But is there more to it? The Hybrid Game MPG Challenge. 